It was really sweet sitting here and just watching you all come in one at a time or two at a time. And I was remembering, this is not what I'd planned to talk about right at the beginning, but here we go. I was remembering years ago, it was 1979, so what does that make it, 40 years ago, I think? (laughs) And I was a very young therapist in Santa Cruz, and I was actually within days of leaving my first marriage. And I went to, I was invited to, I guess, something that was sponsored by Hospice of Santa Cruz, and it was Stephen Levine talking about dying. And as we all gathered, I remember that he was just sitting there, just being present, and I guess, I hope he was enjoying watching us come in just the same way I was enjoying watching you come in, because it felt like such a gift to me just now to see that and to see you. And he was so present, and I remember thinking, wonder what he's got. What does he have that I don't have? What allows him to just wait? I think it's one of the great gifts of the practice, actually, is that ability to wait. So I've always loved the days when we begin practice discussions because up until that point, we have no idea who you are. We really don't. I mean, I know a few of you, as I said the other day, probably Bob does and Christiane does, but for the most part, you're unknown. You look great. You look great. You're so still and you're so quiet. And so it's easy to imagine that you're all really fully enlightened beings and you probably have opinions about us as teachers, right? And except I suppose if you were fully enlightened, you wouldn't have, but let's leave that alone. But you look great. And then you come to the meetings and all of a sudden it gets real, which is so lovely. And, you know, we hear you talk and sometimes... You let us just peek a little bit into your hearts. And sometimes we hear, you know, your struggles and your sorrows and the things that you're coping with. And I think I can speak pretty well for all of us. I mean, I find that my heart, you know, just opens. And I'm, you know, really trying to find the right thing to say. And and it feels like, oh, we're all in this together. You know, your struggles are not any different from my struggles. And maybe I know a thing or two, but often I learn a lot just from sitting with you. It's such a gift these days. So all of a sudden, instead of being a group of people that have no idea about we're family, and where I come from in Hawaii, family is a big deal. Everywhere I go, I'm auntie. I love it. You know, oh, auntie, you know, can I help you? So I don't know, you can call me auntie if you'd like. And um, we can be family together. So today, this point in the retreat, so it's the second night, you've made it through two entire days of practice and a whole lot of body parts, but there's more to come. 
And um, it's usually the day when we talk about the difficulties of practice. And some of you, I know some of you have been to a lot, a lot of retreats. And you've probably heard the usual talk about the five hindrances, so I'm not going to give it. We're not going to do that particular talk tonight. I'm really more going to talk about trusting in our practice. But of course, the most difficult place to trust is when it gets tough. So I do want to talk about that just a little. So I want to remind us all, because I don't know about you who are experienced, but I know about me, and that is I forget that it is perfectly normal to have difficulties in your practice. You know, after all, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 35 years, I think, or maybe a bit more. And you'd think by now, you know, there wouldn't be any difficulties. I'd know how to do it, right? And some I do, but there are still difficulties. And they're much the same ones that we all have. And that's, I think, why it comes in so well tonight, is that's one of the places where it's really difficult to trust that this practice is going to work, because it's so hard. And we get caught with wanting. Anybody want today? I'll bet some of you did. Yeah, yeah. I won't ask you what you wanted, but, you know, probably a wide variety of things. And, or maybe you got pissed off. I, don't, I won't ask who got pissed off, but probably some of you did. Got angry or at least irritated. And some of you, undoubtedly, probably all of us really, were restless at some point or other in the day. And pretty much everybody has some sleepy time. I know <clears throat> my friend Bob over here owned that he had a very sleepy sit at one point today. Maybe some of you noticed, I don't know. We, we, do, get, we do get sleepy up here. And sometimes we are filled with doubt. And we just aren't sure that this is going anywhere. So it's really important. That's the basic list right there. Desire and anger and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. And it's really important to remember that they're there. And it's important to see it when it happens. That's the most important place is seeing it. And recognizing it and going, oh... I'm angry. Because the minute you can do that, right, you're not quite so caught. Or, oh, I'm filled with desire. Or, oh, I'm so sleepy. Whatever it is. And so just that place of being mindful. So this, for those of you who are new, this is a really good thing to remember. That when they come along, don't go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, this is terrible. You know, I can't. I must be failing, you know, I'm going to get the F on the retreat report card. And that's not so. There are no report cards. And just knowing it, just naming it, sort of exploring it. One of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, who is a great English monk and used to be from California, but he got to be very English. And he would say, anger is like this. Get interested. What's your anger like? If you can do it, it's tricky. What's sleepiness like or restlessness? And really go into it and um, explore it a little bit and understand what it is. And, you know, it's also helpful to say that there are things you can do if you get really, really caught. 
So if you're filled with desire for something, the chocolate chip cookies that haven't happened yet, I don't think. I don't know if they do anymore, actually. But there used to be chocolate chip cookies sometimes. (laughs) That won't help you much, will it? (laughs) So you just... You know, you just have to have chocolate chip cookies. It's just so important to have chocolate chip cookies. But, you know, you get those two or three or six or eight chocolate chip cookies, and then what? You eat them, right? And then they're gone. And then they move on through your body. And then, remember that body part that's right next to the brain, right? (laughs) Stomach, feces, brain. There you have it. So, it's impermanent. The cookies will not last, and in fact, they won't be so very pleasant after a while. And, or maybe you're filled with anger. And one of the most difficult recommendations in practice, but it almost invariably works, is when you are angry, the suggestion is to do loving-kindness practice for the person or persons you're angry at, as well as for yourself, of course. And that will begin to shift the energy a little bit. And we talked about sleepiness the other day. Remember sitting in the forest with the mountain lions or sitting at the edge of the well? No well, but I thought afterwards you could sit on the edge of the wall over there. And if you start to go forward, it it would not be good. So you'd probably wake up. So there are remedies for sleepiness, restlessness. The suggestion is really work at concentration, which is going to feel really tough. It is unpleasant to try to concentrate when you're restless, and it often helps a lot. And doubt you're doing, actually, while you're here, exactly one of the things you could do for doubt, which is to go someplace where you will hear spiritual teachings or to hang out with a good friend who shares the practice with you and get renewed in that way. It's also true that practice, especially one like this, where we are focusing so much on the body, going into the body, brings up a lot of stuff. Some of you, I think, have already noticed that. And Bob's talked a lot about it, about the different memories that have come for him and and for other people. And probably today, I know this is true because I heard some of it, you suddenly found yourself really close to some old wounded place, maybe one that you didn't even know that you had. Like, oh. And and it might be a psychological wound, some piece of grief or sorrow or fear or anger that's in there. Or it might be some place where you have some physical issue and you're actually really injured, or there's an injury that isn't healing so well, or you're actually really sick, and you don't know how that's going to go. And so we, we're really, this particular retreat, you are in deep. And it's so helpful, I think, to acknowledge that, because it can be really frightening. And sometimes, again, if you're relatively new to practice, it can feel like, well, I'm, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't do this stuff right now. I'm supposed to plow on, and I'm supposed to get better, and I'm supposed to get enlightened, and I'm supposed to get awake, and or I'm supposed to go deep. And 
if I could tell you any one thing tonight, I would say, not true, not true. That's not how to get enlightened or what awake, whatever that really is. These places are very, very vulnerable. And we are really, I want to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, we are so honored to be able to sit with you when you begin to even reach out gently and touch those places. And they require utmost care and they require great, great compassion for yourself, for yourself. It can be really helpful to acknowledge that just something is there. I see you. I see you. I see you, knee. I see you, cancer. I see you, grief. And you just see it. You're not fixing it. You're not getting rid of it. You're just seeing it and being present with it. And you might say to it or, you know, have this in your heart, you know, when you're ready, oni, or when you're ready, illness, you can speak and I will listen. I will listen. And I will welcome whatever you have to say. And if you're not ready, that's fine. We'll get there sooner or later. You know, we intuitively know to do this with frightened children or animals. And we forget, so often we forget, that we can do it with ourselves. We can hold ourselves just in that way. And for those of you who are new, You may not be so sure that this mindfulness business, being present in that way, really works. Despite all the hype there is about mindfulness these days, and my goodness, there's a lot of mindful hype. Um, But I will remind you that this practice has been around in the Buddhist form for 2,600 years, and probably longer, because practices of being present are there in just about every spiritual tradition that I know of. So it has a long and very, very good reputation. So the direction I want to go this evening with this is I want to look at um, some things that can be really supportive of your practice. And one of those is the factor of trust, of trusting the practice. And this particular group of qualities can be really, really supportive when things are tough and when they're good. So the basic list is again one that may be familiar to some of you, which is called the five faculties. It's a list I'm particularly fond of just because I find it so helpful, but also because it's actually identical with another list, which is called the five strengths. So these things which are helpful are also the same identical five things that 
are really, that really bring some strength into your practice. So the five are conviction, or what I'm calling trust, energy, mindfulness itself, concentration, and wisdom. So I think of them as being a kind of toolkit. I like to be practical about practice and working on it. And it's a great toolkit because it's useful while you're here at the retreat and it's also useful when you go home. So the first thing, the one I want to spend most time on, is this factor of conviction. In Pali, the word is sada, and it means to place the heart upon. Isn't that lovely? To place the heart upon. And it sometimes gets translated as faith, and that's a translation I don't particularly like, because in our day and age, with as much difficult religious controversy as there is, it has some connotations for people which are not helpful. And so often today, we talk about conviction, you know, that place where you really become convinced you actually know something. And as I said, I'm um, really liking the word trust. So the Buddha was really realistic. It's one of the things also I really like about these teachings. They're so practical. And he knew that you didn't get convinced overnight. You didn't just suddenly have faith. It doesn't work that way, right? And one of the ways he talks about it, he has a metaphor for it, and he says it's like if you're um, wanting to find an elephant. So in India, in that part of the Asian world, elephants are very often used for work. If you ever go there, you'll see them often hauling logs and putting things away and sometimes carrying people and they hang around in villages and sometimes they get loose and they cause trouble. I was in a village in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago and I found out that just like I used to have snow days when I was growing up in Maine, when there was too much snow to go to school, they have elephant days. And what that means is the elephant came through the school the night before and knocked a bunch of stuff around and so they would have to close the school and clean up and get it all ready for the kids the next day. I rather like that. I kind of wished I'd had elephant days instead of snow days. So, you know, it's an image that was useful for him. And so think of, let's think of a few things. You might think of an intimate relationship that you are either in or that you were in. Or you might think of a teacher that has been really important to you or was important to you. Or a dear friend. Or you might even think of your dog or your cat. And often when these relationships begin, you fall madly in love, right? You meet the person wherever you met them, yeah? Or you hear the teacher and you were really, really excited. You know, or you saw the dog or the cat. So something drew you in, right? Most of us have had this experience. And you went on the next date. Or you went home with him or her, which is what I did, but I don't talk about it too much. <laughs> or maybe you signed up for the next 10 retreats with that teacher. Or as I said, you 
took the dog home from the shelter, which is something I did relatively recently. So this is this place where, wow, this is possibly going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. So the Buddha said, that's like when you see the footprint of the elephant, you know, in the jungle. That's all you see. You see the great big footprint. You go, wow, this might be the perfect elephant to work on my farm and to help me out. But that's never enough, right? Because it doesn't always work, does it? You know? Sometimes things fall apart completely. Sometimes fairly quickly. Definitely, you will discover in any of these situations that there are places that require work. You know, the person that you fell in love with has some really difficult habits. Mine plays awful games on the that involved tanks on his computer. <laughs> hmm. Or maybe the dog chews things, you know, chews up your favorite pillow, or poops on the rug, which is also not so attractive. Or the teacher turns out to be kind of human, and maybe even a bit too human. And so then maybe the relationship ends, or the dog gets sent back. One of my dogs was sent home from his first adoption site, but we took him in, so he's good now. Or you hunt for another teacher. So, but sometimes things work out, you know, you stay connected. That man who's been shooting tanks on his computer, I've been with him for 38 years, so, you know, it's taken a bit of work, but it's worked out. <laughs> and um, so you stay connected, you stay connected, and you begin to have trust. You begin to know that this is something that is good and can work. And the Buddha said that at that point, your trust, your conviction is verified. It's got you know, sort of a stamp of approval. And so this is the point in his image of the elephant where you begin to see even more signs that there's a real elephant somewhere in the jungle. But you're not sure. You know, there's still some little bit of doubt in there. So you have to keep working on it. And over time, our trust, our conviction, our faith, if you like the word, becomes abiding. And that's the point when you actually see this great elephant, the elephant of awakening, if you will, in the jungle. So like I said, my Russell has been around for 38 years. <clears throat> I've been asked if I could clone him, so I think he's probably doing pretty well as a husband because people want the clones, that's a good sign. And my dogs, you know, have settled down and they are filled with love and we all have found a way to be nurtured by the teachings. But here we sit with our bodies. You know, I have a body. <laughs> I can hardly wait to go home and say to Russell, I have a body. <laughs> you can, we can all try it and then see how it sits with our family and friends. And I know this room is riddled with illness and injury. You know, we have hearts and bodies that need healing. And of course, any practice about bodies, as this one already, any conversation about bodies, as this one already has, includes the fact that they die. They are 
impermanent. So how, how do we trust this? How do we trust this? The Buddha saw really clearly that impermanence is at the heart of things and it's at the heart of his teachings. He talks about it over and over and over and over again. And he says, you know, this is one of the things you really, really have to see. So in this last year, I've had three surgeries for cancer. And in fact, Bob persuaded me to have copied by the managers the pictures of my melanoma <laughs> that was taken off of my left shoulder. And they're up there on the altar. And you see the picture of the melanoma with the lines drawn around it where the surgeon was gonna cut. And then you have the picture, which unfortunately includes a lot of my wrinkles, but that probably supports the impermanence idea. So that's up there, it's up there. I told him he couldn't have pictures for the breast cancer surgery, but you know. So the good news for me is that the outcomes were excellent and I'm actually in very good shape. But I'm about to have my 78th birthday. So the handwriting is on the wall, you know. And <laughs> one of the things that happened just before I came here, I saw my surgeon Oh, my love. My surgeon has his perfect attendance certificate for the fifth grade hanging up with all his doctor's certificates. <laughs> I knew he was a good man when I saw that. <laughs> great, great guy. And I said, you know, I feel like I'm sprouting cancers. And he said, well, you are the age you are. And that is what happens when people get really, really old. Sometimes the body just tends to do things that we don't want it to do. So that's, you know, great, thank you. Hmm. So as I've gone through this year, I have had to ask myself, because there have been times when I didn't know what the outcome was. So I have had to ask myself, do I really trust what I am doing? Do I trust it? I sit up here and I talk and I teach, I've done it for years and years. That's all very well, but I haven't had to live it into dying yet. I haven't even come close. That was a moment when I thought that for the first time. Do I trust this amazing mystery that we are, that is, embodiment or incarnation, if you will, in time and space that is life and death. I was thinking, remind me almost like an email address, it should say life and death, all one word. Because we don't think of it that way, do we? We do life and we'll put the other part over here some. As I face my own dying, which will come sooner or later, can I trust the practice? Can I trust that the practice of being fully present, which is what we're trying to do here, will carry me into those last moments of consciousness? No matter where they are in that process. Sometimes consciousness goes sooner, sometimes later. Sometimes the answer has been yes, 
which has been a lovely and sweet and fleeting moment. And sometimes I don't know. It's important. Stephen Levine, when I heard him other times after that first time, used to say, I don't want to die saying, oh shit, when it happens kind of suddenly, you know. So that's a very good question. Do you? I don't, you know. And so the question is, can I move into those last moments saying yes and letting go this moment and this moment and the story in the Washington Post today about a woman who had been waiting for a long, long time for a liver transplant. And she had a variety of other issues. And um, she had written a letter to her daughter who was, I don't know, six maybe, really young. And talking about, you know, wanting so much to live and at the same time being as present as she could with the very, very real possibility that she would die. They put her off and they put her off and they put her off. It was a horrible situation. And she finally got her liver and died on the operating table. So, you know, we practice. And we experiment with trusting our practice. You've seen the footprint of the elephant. Some of you have probably seen more than the footprint. You wouldn't be here if that were not true. And probably you also know quite a bit about trust in other realms and other places in your body, in your life. So, This is important. Wherever you know trust, to be interested in it and to encourage it, you know, and to develop it. And so this is where the next of those faculties come in because this takes energy. It doesn't just happen. I keep wishing it would, you know, but it doesn't just happen. You really do need to practice. I worked with one teacher for a long time. He had this very simple practice of body awareness. Very simple. He wanted us to do it all the time. I was with him, I think, for eight years. And I finally realized about year six that he really meant it. It wasn't something that he could say and I could just, you know, shine on. We really do need to do it. So retreats are great. That's a wonderful place to put energy and it certainly takes a lot of energy to get here. And it's a place to learn about energy because, you know, you can come in here and you can decide, by God, I am not going to leave the hall until I am fully enlightened. My guess is you'll probably get sleepy and go back to bed before that ever happens, but you can try it and you can really strive. Or, you know, we can go the other direction and we can be lazy. And the whole art of energy and effort is getting it just right. 
which means a constant shifting. The image the Buddha gives is of tuning a lute. And if any of you have been around like stringed instruments, people are always tuning their stringed instruments and getting it just right. In between songs, if they're playing a sake guitar, or, you know, the violins in the orchestra or whatever, just tuning, tuning, tuning so that that string is just the right amount of taut. And that's what you have to do here be a great question to ask yourself tomorrow morning. What do I need to do with my energy today? Is today a gentle day? Take care of myself? Maybe fit in a nap? Or is today, oh, let's really go for it. I feel strong. My energy is good. Sit a little extra, maybe after breakfast and before the first sit come in during the lunchtime, do some extra walking, whatever it is that you do that, you know, when your energy is really up. And every other possible variation that you can think of. And each of you has to find your own way because your energy is your energy. It's not anybody else's. So, you know, push when you can and rest when you can't. The life of practice is really a challenge course. It's not a quick fix. And so we keep practicing and practicing trying to end our suffering. I've always liked an image that, oh, let me back up. I'm gonna say a couple of other things. No, I don't. I'm gonna say an image, I'm gonna tell you this story now. So this is an image, um, it's a story about a beauty queen, not a very, it seems sort of odd as a, as a Buddhist story. And the beauty queen is walking through the crowd. And um, there is a man who's gonna walk between the queen and the crowd and he's going to be carrying a bowl that is filled with oil, filled to the brim. So you know how that is when something's really full, right to the very, very, very brim. And then behind him is a man with a sword who's going to cut his head off if he spills the oil. <laughs> so you can imagine that his practice of mindfulness with that bowl of oil is very, very strong. So the invitation is that when we can do it, or however we can do it, to practice with that kind of intensity? Do we come with passion and, and energy, trying to find the ending of suffering? Because that is what this is about. And we'll be talking about that more this week, that you know, the Buddha wanted all beings to not to suffer, and his whole teaching is pointed toward that. So even if what you're doing is balancing around injury or illness, that's still carrying the bowl that carefully. Exactly that. Nobody's gonna cut off your head. We don't do that here. But you know, to really practice with that kind of intention because you're wanting, I hope passionately, to end your own suffering and that of all beings. So mindfulness is at the center of all this. You know, that's, that's one of the things I like about this list is here you've got faith and energy and then you have mindfulness. And so we have 
you know, we're being mindful a lot this week as you sit and as you walk and as you do the Qigong and hopefully as you go out into the world, you know, as you speak more and as you sing and as you dance and as you make love and as you cook your dinner, being, learning to be fully, fully present in our lives. John Tarrant, who's a wonderful Zen teacher and therapist, talks about attention, mindfulness, attention, pretty much the same thing. And he says, an attention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. He says, attention gives us more life. It expands the register, bringing us to notice more of the vividness of our dark lives so that we can exist in our true range and not go around missing things as if we knew countries only from their airports and hotels. He goes on to say, attention is the most basic form of love. Isn't that wonderful? Attention is the most basic form of love. Though we bless and through it we bless and are blessed. When we attend to the interior life, we also connect with what surrounds us. The espresso machine hissing, the green points on the snowdrops nodding over the cold ground. What was matter and merely inanimate becomes family. And we, the children, walking, walking, walking home. Last summer, towards the end of that volcanic eruption that was happening on the big island where I live, I had occasion to fly over it in a small airplane. And, you know, it was fabulous. It was so fabulous. And from above, the lava looks smooth and shiny and sometimes even silvery. And, you know, the clouds of fume are white and beautiful. And then the hot lava itself flowed majestically in places like a huge river. It was just astounding to see it. But I've walked on lava. I've walked on new lava. And I've walked up to where lava is flowing. And that's another story. That's different from seeing it 2,000 feet in the air. So in order to know something intimately, we have to get close. Dogen says that meditation is intimacy with all things. And it's especially being intimate with your own being. That's what we're asking you to do today and every day. So... Mindfulness is intimate, it attends, it's not asleep, it's not in denial, it can be with what is difficult and what is lovely. It simply sees what is there. It sees the arising, the duration, and the passing of every event. So it helps if you can focus, if you can have some concentration. So just the mindfulness isn't often isn't enough. You know, certainly, if we go back to walking on lava, it really helped to pay attention and to be focused on what I was doing because it's dangerous out there. So today, you've been focused some, I hope. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, bone, bone marrow, kidney. That's today, you know, and you, I hope 
that as you heard the description of the body parts and as you sat with them, you felt like, wow, my teeth. Whoa. Mm. Get a little bit more intimate with your teeth. Or, you know, the sinews as you walked around. Could you actually feel your sinews or maybe feel around and find some sinewy things in your arms and really begin to be intimate with them or to be intimate with a sound, the turkeys. Oh, they're my favorite thing here. Or the osprey as they call in the air. You know, or the sound of the roar of the, whatever it is, the blower, the air conditioning that comes in here. Or the being intimate with your breath. You know, one day on a retreat, my teacher gave me the instruction to find, I think he said, four new things about the breath. I went, what? (laughs) I've been watching the breath for, I don't know, several years at that point. Like, four new things? It was great, because I really had to look much, much more closely. Or maybe you've become intimate with your sadness or your fear today. You know, or maybe your joy. Because it's not all just sadness and fear and anger. There's joy in there too. This practice that we're doing, the 32 parts of the body, has been used as a concentration practice. And it's, it's actually quite traditionally used that way because it really focuses the mind on these different parts and on the recitation of the parts. So we encourage you to allow yourself to develop a bit of concentration as you really focus on the different parts, to relax into the awareness of them, to keep the attention there. One of the clues for concentration is that often concentration brings with it sometimes a little bit of happiness. And if there's some happiness or joy that begins to arise, notice it and enjoy it. It's not like, oh, no, no, that, you know, I'm working here. The, the joy and the happiness actually will support concentration. Sometimes it's even recommended to reflect a little on what makes you happy before you start practicing because then you bring that openness of mind. And if you question that, just try concentrating when you're grumpy or afraid. It won't work very well. You know, it's much, it helps more to have that happy place. It's also helpful to penetrate your experience with that focused mind without an agenda. You're not leaning into the future. If I do this, it will go away. If I really explore that pain in my elbow or my shoulder, it'll go. Not necessarily. Jack used to like to say, well, it might go, but it might stay the same or it might even get worse. It's not your job. Your job is to go into it. So no agenda, no leaning into the future and becoming, no leaning back into the past, just this moment. And it's really important to know that concentration is a skill. It takes time to practice it. There's a warning, though. Some of you will find that you concentrate very easily and very well. And it can get very quiet. And sometimes it's a little bit altered state and a bit blissful which is all lovely, but don't get attached because that's where you get yourself into trouble. And then you want that again, and then it becomes much harder to get there. 
So all of that brings us to the last piece, which is wisdom. And it's a product of the work, but it's also a tool. So it's important to remember that you are already wise. I'm sitting here with, I don't know what it is, 60 wise people, if we count all of us who are working on the retreat. Isn't that cool? 60 wise people. doesn't happen too often these days. And um, so you are already wise, and it is the product of insight. It's the element of insight. When you see something, even if it's simple, that's wisdom arising in your practice. And some of them really are simple. It's a clear sense of how your body is, you know? It really is that way. One of the other things that's happening in my old age is I don't have, I have almost no eyesight left in my right eye. That's how it is. And sometimes I can be with that. It is what it is and I can let the insights arise and sometimes I can't do it. So some insights are deep. You'll see, oh look, you know, I've gotten so attached there and I'm really creating a lot of suffering. Or sometimes you go, oh wow, look at that, I let go and it got better. I was happier, there was more freedom. When I'm reactive and angry, I suffer, as do most of those around me. And when I am a little more spacious and not so reactive, things get better. So we begin to see that holding ourselves, holding this sense of me a great deal more gently and more loosely actually is um, helpful. Because in fact we begin to see that you aren't really a solid, separate being. You are a flow of experiences. There's a quote that I've always loved from Jacob Burma who is a a mystic of I think the 17th century, but I might be off by a century. And he says, God whose love and joy are everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. God whose love and joy, so work with the God word however works for you, it doesn't matter. God whose love and joy are everywhere can't, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So one of the most helpful things about this list, and this is pretty much the end of where I'm going, I promised I wasn't going to talk too long, is that these, these faculties balance each other. And so um, faith is balanced by wisdom, and energy or effort is balanced by concentration, and then mindfulness is sort of the overseer. So, like we talked about, falling in love, meeting something, getting excited, it's so juicy and it's so fun and it's so absolutely blind, right? And wisdom, which sees very, very clearly, can get really dry and kind of analytical. And so the two things really need each other in a well-developed practice. And energy can bring all the fire and the push that we need. 
and it helps us to move against obstacles and help us as we deal with hindrances, but it can be too much and we can burn out. And so concentration, which can be much stiller and much quieter and restful, can balance that. But of course, all that stillness and quiet can get so still and so quiet, and then you need to bring back the energy to the balance. And the mindfulness piece keeps track of it. And it says, oh, okay, I think I need a little more. So again, tomorrow, as you begin your practice, you might take a little temperature reading, like, what do I need today? Do I need, hmm, you know, do I need more trust and faith? Or do I need more wisdom? Do I need more energy? Or do I need more stillness? And to really look at your own practice, to monitor your own practice in that way. So, like I said at the very beginning, when we use them over and over again, then they become the five strengths. So your ability to trust, your knowledge of energy, your uh, mindfulness, your concentration, and your wisdom become the great strength of a developed practice. You have everything that you need already. It's all there. It's all there. And we find that that's true as we are intimate with our own being and our practice. None of us is going to sit you down and say, now here's the secret teaching. Doesn't happen that way. You are the ones, as I have been the one, to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the experience of your own being, into the experience of the mystery of your own being, to see what is there. And when we really see what is there, that's what helps to make us more waked up. Gendon Rinpoche says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want. So that awakening is resting quietly in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, and nothing to want. So, let's sit. We're going to sit for a little bit. And um, after we've sat for a while, I'm going to introduce a very simple chant. So I'll talk a little bit more about that as we're chanting, as we begin to chant. And then we'll end for the evening. So find your posture. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.